Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Premier Doug Ford is criticizing Bonnie Crombie's liberal leadership bid as she continues to be mayor of Mississauga. Colin DeMello, Queen's Park Bureau Chief, will join us and talk about that. Well, it's easy to see that Volkswagen and Stellaris are getting a big deal out of this. We're talking billions of dollars in subsidies, right? That Canada's dangling in front of them. But what about Canada? And what about Ontario? What do we get out of the deal? get into that for you. And former CSIS director reacts to Johnston's recommendations. Why no public inquiry? It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly podcast and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly show on 900 CHML. Well, it's game on. Uh, Doug Ford uh, was making an announcement uh, about some training for, uh, again, on-job training, which is a great step for the province. We get all that. But during the Q&A with the, uh, the media, uh, he was asked about uh, our Mississauga Mayor Bonnie Crombie, who's made her intentions known that she wants to run for the leadership of uh, the Ontario Liberal Party. And uh, <laughs> she also said that she's not going to step aside from her job as mayor of Mississauga uh, while she is, in fact, uh, running for the leadership. And, uh, in fact, she wits it. I guess she's going to have to make a decision then. But the premier, as you might have expected, has an opinion on that. Uh, he says that Mississauga Mayor Bonnie Crombie should quit her day job if she decides to run for the Liberal Party leadership. Uh, Crombie, of course, recently and made that intention quite known, but uh, the Premier had this to say. You can't be running for mayor or being mayor and running for a leader. Like, you know, you can't put your butt on both sides of the fence. Okay. <laughs> it's game on, folks, here in Ontario. Uh, they know each other, of course. Of course, Bonnie Crombie was a longtime uh, MPP and, and cabinet minister in a liberal, a past liberal government. Joining us to talk about that and, and a few other things going on across around Queen's Park, please to welcome back to the program, Colin DeMello, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News. Morning, Colin. How are you today? Good morning, Bill. Doing well. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Great to have you back with us here. I, I guess one thing right off the top uh, that was, is no surprise to us is that uh, Doug Ford doesn't mince his words, does he? No, I mean, he's always been kind of that shoot from the hips, straight talking politician who doesn't consider himself to be a politician. So it's no surprise that he uses kind of this colorful language when trying to make a point. And, you know, the the image of a politician having a butt on two sides of the fence <laughs> is, is kind of one that's, you know, funny, but it makes his, his point about straddling this line of being mayor while at the same time running for liberal leader that the premier seems to suddenly uh, be against. It's interesting because, you know, he's he's made a lot of announcements, almost two or three a week now that, that you've been covering. It's basically funding announcements for some of the, the training programs, and that, that's all good news. But he seemed to have at least a working relationship with Bonnie Crombie uh, as Mississauga mayor, as, as you might expect. It's, it's the third largest city in Ontario. Uh, but as soon as she, it became pretty evident that she was leaning towards running for the leadership, uh, that, that changed, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, the two have had a bit of a love-hate relationship, right? Because uh, Bonnie Crombie has been one of the only vocal mayors who's really, you know, been a thorn in the side of the premier, especially over Bill 23. Bill 23 essentially eliminates development charges that municipalities would charge uh, developers. So essentially, you're building a, you know, huge sky rise. Uh, a high rise, sorry, in uh, Mississauga, you'd have to pay a certain fee to the municipality so that they could build the surrounding infrastructure like the parks and the sewage and all of that that would service this this building. The Ford government eliminated that. And, and Bonnie Crombie has been very vocal about it. And, and it really came to blows between these two politicians making very public kind of jabs at one another. So they've, they've had these blow ups, but then they've also had moments where they've 
come together, right? The premier has hosted Bonnie Crombie at his uh, at his uh, private residence. Uh, the two have kind of hashed things out behind closed doors. And remember last week, just a week ago today, uh, the government tabled legislation that would give Bonnie Crombie everything that she's been looking for, which is a separated, independent uh, city of Mississauga, um, you know, strong mayor powers to come. She's, if she stays on in this role, will be given a lot of tools from Doug Ford. And instead of, you know, in his view, being thankful for it, she's kind of turning around and saying, well, now I'm going to run against you. And so, you know, Doug Ford's the kind of guy who likes and values loyalty, likes and values people who, you know, will play in the sandbox, as he said before, but the sandbox is he defines it. So now that Bonnie Crombie is going to play in another sandbox, one that'll, you know, pit her potentially directly against him, uh, those loyalties and those, uh, you know, those good warm feelings seem to have been severed a bit. And now you get the, the, the kind of the sharper side of Doug Ford as he really looks to start to try to denigrate her a little bit uh, and, and take some of the shine off of Bonnie Crombie because he's going to have to face her in a general election if she becomes the leader of the liberal Colin, let me ask you about that. You, you've been covering Queen's Park politics for a long time now, and and you know the people, the places, you know all the players, and a lot of their attitudes too. Uh, were you even surprised that Bonnie Crombie decided to p- pretty much take a run at this? I mean, she's already served as a, an MPP, as a cabinet minister. She's been there, done that. Uh, you would have thought that, okay, the transition to mayor of Mississauga, which she can probably have for as long as she wants, uh, knowing the people of Mississauga, when when they love their mayor, they love their mayor. Uh, but why go back into the into the lion's den here? Well, I mean, that's a, that's a good question, right? I mean, there are a lot of things um, working against Bonnie Crombie jumping into this race. Uh, to your point, she could get elected from now until, you know, whenever she chooses to get out of politics, uh, if she if she wants to. She's got three more years left on this mandate. Uh, and on top of that, she's getting these strong mayor powers in independent Mississauga, and she'd be looking over, you know, the next kind of evolution of Mississauga from from where it is today. So there's a lot riding on her really not getting into this race. But at the same time, you know, don't uh, don't for a second uh, discount somebody's personal ambition. And I think she really feels like you know, she's done the federal bit. She's done the municipal bit. She's been a city councilor. She's been a, uh, a mayor. She's gotten some big things done for the municipality. And now she wants to kind of roll out that vision across the province. And she's got a lot of people, a lot of liberals, former, current um, liberals who are all saying to her, you are the person who could you know, bring the party back to life. And she seems to have ignited some something of some excitement within the Ontario Liberal Party. And maybe even those who might not be uh, have not voted liberal for the last couple of elections might be looking at her saying, ah, you know what, maybe maybe it's time for me to come home. So th- there is a lot of a push and a pull with Bonnie Crombie getting into this race. But I think at the end of the day, um, you know, there's a lot left to go before she, you know, they, the, the liberals crown the next leader. So it's not a done deal. Uh, so she's going to have to kind of duke it out. And, th- and that's when the reality check will start to set in as she starts to get into these debates with other liberals who will definitely try to take her down because she is the perceived front runner. But I've noticed that even from me reporting, well, from day one, when, when Stephen Del Duca stepped down after the last provincial election, uh, she seemed to be everybody's choice, even though she said hey, she, at that time she had no interest in it. Uh, but she said, you know, they'll, they'll come, she'll come around. She'll, and I guess after a while that, that starts to resonate with you. I mean, let's politicians have egos too. Don't we know that? Well, she, yeah. Yeah. I mean, listen, she has a lot of star power. And she has a lot of name recognition. And th- those two things will you know, play very heavily 
uh, into a next general election. I've spoken to, you know, some conservative strategists and some pollsters who all say the same thing. Or Bonnie Crombie poses something of a threat to Premier Doug Ford. And the reason is because of the 905. In order to win government, both federally and provincially, you need the 905, stretching all the way from Durham in the east up to you know Vaughan and, and Woodbridge and Markham. But then crucially, Peel region, right? The progressive conservatives won a larger majority in 2022 because they swept all 12 seats in Brampton and Mississauga. Now, you have Bonnie Crombie, who's got an incredible amount of popularity in, in Mississauga, right? She told me a couple of days ago that she's been able to grow her majorities every time in every single election, grow her support. So she's confident that she'd be able to win every single seat in Mississauga. She'd probably be able to win a couple of seats in Brampton as well, if not, if not the majority of them. And that poses a real risk to the progressive conservatives if they want to have this three-peat, uh, a hat trick in terms of electoral majorities. And so, of course, Premier Doug Ford looks yesterday, frankly, a little bit threatened. He looked off his game. He was trying to make a couple of points about Bonnie Crombie, but seemed to be stumbling on his words a little bit. And the best attack he could come up with was, oh, she's running for leader while she's also uh, a, a sitting mayor. Let's not forget that in 2010, uh, his brother, Rob Ford, had run for the mayor of Toronto while still being a city councillor. In 2014, Doug Ford ran for the mayor of Toronto while still being a city councillor. Patrick Brown ran for the CPC leadership while still being the mayor of, of Brampton. And even today, you've got Josh Matlow, you've got Brad Bradford, um, who are running for mayor and they're sitting councillors. There are plenty of examples. Uh, so, so the premier's you know, initial attack on Bonnie Crombie seemed to fall a little bit flat. Well, and and as you've been reporting, I mean, that's the law. I mean, everybody, everything you just mentioned here, uh, these guys didn't break any rules. They, they, some people may want to question the ethics of that, but the rules as they stand right now, if you're a federal member and you want to run locally, you do have to resign. Same thing if you're a provincial member. But if, if you're going the other way, then basically you do what you want to do and let the public make their decisions about it. So it's 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 not wrong, but he's certainly going to try to hang on to that, I would think, is one of his main talking points. Yeah, I mean, you know, and I think this is an interesting dynamic in the liberal leadership race as well, right? Because there are others who are signed up. Nate Erskine-Smith, a federal MP, and um, Ted Shu, an Ontario uh, liberal MPP. Both of them have officially registered, while Yasser Nakvi, the former attorney general in Ontario, and... Uh, um, Adil Shamji, the current liberal health critic in Ontario, they are, you know, considering their own uh, campaigns. But the premier has not mentioned any of them. The only person he's mentioned is Bonnie Crombie. So it really already lends itself to the belief for at least liberal voters that she's the one who Doug Ford might be somewhat concerned about uh, if he's already kind of talking about her and, and you know, criticizing her in a, in a very public way. So I think this is going to be a very interesting dynamic in the in the weeks and months to come, because keep in mind, the background of all of this is the separation of Peel region. What happens there? Doug Ford has granted this. Bonnie Crombie and uh, Patrick Brown have been kind of at odds about what Branton or Mississauga deserve. And, and here you have one of these three individuals in this mix who's running for liberal leadership. It's, it's, it's very messy, but the dynamics are very interesting. And this is, you know, politics at its, at its finest, I would say. Well, exactly. And it, and it really kind of underscores what you've been reporting for the last little while, that 905 is the battleground here. Well, not just in, in provincial, but in federal politics, too. It counts, and it counts for a lot. 
And uh, and if he's going to have a competitor who's from that area and who's popular in that area, I, I can understand how he's going to be a, a little bit worried about that. So it's going to be fun to watch this develop over the next little while. Colin, as always, thank you so much for this. Always appreciate your input into this. My pleasure, Bill. Thank you for having me. Take care. Colin DeBello, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for uh, Global News. And you can watch for updates on that, of course, at Global News at 5 and 5.30 with Colin and the gang. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The industry minister's comments Friday came after Premier Doug Ford confirmed that Ontario is offering more money in a bid to keep Stellantis from pulling out of the $5 billion project. Uh, This is all about saving jobs and giving people the quality of life they deserve in southwestern Ontario. Stellantis and LG Energy Solutions stopped construction earlier this week, saying the federal government hasn't lived up to an agreement to match subsidies on offer in the United States. The federal government had been pressuring Ontario to pitch in more money, saying the province also has to pay its fair share. Emily Jovesky, The Canadian Press. Thank you, Emily. This is the Bill Kelly Show, 980 CFPL in London, 900 CHML in Hamilton. I mean, there was a lot of fanfare, but uh, but both announcements, of course, but Stellantis and and the Volkswagen plants, Uh, all kinds of jobs, all sorts of related jobs that are going to be created as a result of this. And we embrace this and figure, hey, this is great news, right? Super. You know, they're they're choosing us. Uh, But there's a lot of money on the table and a lot of people. Uh, have expressed some serious concerns about this. Now, I expect that from the opposition parties, because that's what they do. They oppose just about anything government wants to do. So that's fine. But when a number of people that that have expertise in business and economics start to say, wait just a second here, guys, Uh, let's, let's think this through. Uh, I think we should be paying attention and saying just what is the strategy here and is it the right strategy to, to be following? Uh, to that end, we bring our, our next guest in who's got some pretty strong opinions on this. Uh, he is uh, Ian Lee, of course, associate professor at the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. Ian, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure, Bill. You've expressed concern. I mean, I think it was the day that they made this announcement. You you were on our program talking about this. Uh, a lot of money, and, and I guess one of the major concerns, if I can put it in broad terms right now, is uh, we may get one-offs every now and then, but we can't we can't play poker with the United States. I mean, the, the stakes are just too high, and, and we just, I, I don't think we can afford it. Is, is that a fair argument? Uh, that's one of the arguments. That's not the only argument, because some people say, what are you talking about? we got the Bank of Canada. We're a very wealthy country. So, yes, we can afford it, if you mean it in the literal sense that we'll go bankrupt if we pay the money. Of course, that's not going to happen. No. We can afford it in that sense. What I'm arguing is it is squandering scarce resources, because money is finite, even for the government of Canada. It doesn't have infinite resources. It has finite resources. That's why we have budgets, because the budgets are saying what we're spending it on, and implicitly what we're not spending money on, all the other things that people make demands. There's all kinds of lobbyists in Ottawa, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's over there's several thousand people registered as lobbyists, and they're all lobbying the government to do what? Spend more money. But the government doesn't say yes to every lobbyist. They say no to many of them, and then they say yes to some of them. So that demonstrates that money is scarce, because if it wasn't scarce, you'd just say yes to everybody and say, yes, 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 we'll give whatever you want to whatever. And everybody knows that's absurd. So as Pierre Trudeau used to say, government is about making difficult choices. They can't do everything. He was absolutely correct. And so this choice, I argue, was a very bad choice. Um, It was bad. Let's start with the first one. They said it's to create jobs. We have the lowest unemployment rate since the 1960s. We have a desperate 
shortage of workers, almost a million. So what this is going to do, if nothing else, let's assume it does create all the jobs they're saying. I don't believe the indirect numbers, by the way. Uh, and there's others saying that, too. They say 30,000. I think it's preposterous. The 3,000 direct jobs I won't challenge because those are the jobs that are needed to run that factory. But the indirect jobs I challenge. But let's pretend that they have data to support that. They never released it. They have no data in my in my judgment. What I've heard over the grapevine, there is none. They just plucked a number out of basically out of uh, thin air. But if they did, if we've got a million job shortages now, where are those jobs going to come from? Well, they're going to poach steel solicit, whatever word you want, jobs of workers, uh, workers from other companies in nearby industries that have similar skill sets. That's not creating jobs. That's just reshuffling the deck. They're reshuffling the cards. So what you're doing is you're taking some uh, people that are working in uh, smaller businesses that pay smaller wages, because smaller companies do pay smaller wages than big companies. So what you're going to be doing is poaching workers from smaller companies that have people with technical skills, and 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 and, and let's say be blunt, uh, stealing them uh, from other companies and creating a problem in those companies may even cause those companies to fail. So first off, we don't need it. The argument, the implicit argument, is oh look at all the wonderful things we're doing. We're creating all these jobs, and the implicit but unstated assumption is we desperately need more jobs. No, we don't desperately need more jobs. We desperately need more workers. We have a shortage of workers. So right away, they're, they're trying to solve a problem that does not exist. We do not have high unemployment as we did in 2009 when we bailed out General Motors and Chrysler. The argument, I wasn't crazy about it, but I understood it, was, well, look, the un- we're in a recession. Unemployment's gone through the roof. It did. And lots of people are out of work. They were. We've got to help these people, and we're going to try and save these companies to save those jobs. Okay, there was the logic. There was high unemployment, and these people would otherwise go on the unemployment lines. There is no such argument that can be made today such as that. They cannot make that argument. All they're doing, as I said, is stealing jobs from somebody else, from other companies and other industries. And the second point is this is inflationary, because this is an injection of money that the government doesn't have, meaning they're running deficits. We all know that. And any money spent by government that is not funded through revenues, through taxes, in other words, any uh, spending by government that is deficit-financed, is stimulative. That's why every time there's a recession, the cry goes out, government should be spending money to create jobs and get the economy going again. And it stimulates because it's fresh new money being injected into the economy. It's the very opposite of a tax cut, which is contractionary, as are interest rates. You're taking money out of the economy. So here we are paying higher interest rates, which I support, to cool down the economy. It's running way too hot. And so we're trying to cool down the economy with interest rates. And then we turn around and pump yet more stimulus into the economy, and which is, is only going to undermine the, the fight against inflation, uh, which will lead probably to higher interest rates. And then the let me ask you. Let me ask you, though, just if I could, and I want to sure. just go back for a second, because uh, you were talking about, as you say, the spin-off jobs here, and, and I, I agree with you that I, I think they pulled this number out of the air. Uh, but and again, one of the reasons for that is, is that they didn't show data. But uh, I mean, with the old way of making cars, uh, you know, the combustion engine, uh, I, you can 
imagine what those spinoff industries are. And here in Southern Ontario, we, we saw great examples of that. Magna International, uh, Orlick yeah. Industries, David Braley's old company, Stackpole. Uh, I mean, they used to brag about the fact that there isn't a car that goes off the line anywhere in North America that doesn't have parts made in the Hamilton uh, GTA area. Uh, this is a different animal altogether. And I, I, maybe there are spinoff jobs, but certainly that number here is questionable as, to, as the, the economic spinoff here where other people are going to have ancillary jobs because of this. It, it just seems rather odd. But people just accept the number and say, oh, you know, that's, that's fabulous news. Nobody asks the question. How's that going to happen? It, I, I'm with you completely, and the 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 related issue is is that there is this industry is becoming more and more concentrated, meaning fewer and fewer companies, and it's going to it's increasingly concentrated. Everyone knows this, at least anyone who looks at the industry. It's increasingly concentrated in a small number of countries who are dominating it, and that's China, and that's the United States, and it's Germany, Japan, and South Korea. And so the idea that there are some other company countries, excuse me, that are going to get a small piece of the pie, they will for a short while. But the industry, the ecosystem of automotive automotive manufacturing, is increasingly concentrating. And the stats show this. So this isn't me just talking and plucking numbers out of the thin air like the government does. The data is showing that the industry is becoming more and more concentrated in that small number of countries where they're creating the entire ecosystem. I'm talking the design of the cars and the engineering and the plants and the batteries and the transmissions and everything. And so even if we build this plant, we are. There's no guarantee that the United States won't pass yet another law in three months, six months, nine months, 12 months, 15 months, five years, three years, that says that all electric cars must have the batteries made in the United States. There's absolutely nothing. And so we are not big enough to compete in this industry. That's my point. And, and that's what Sergio Barkey was really saying, the late, brilliant CEO of Chrysler, uh, Stellantos or whatever they call it now. I just still call it Chrysler. And he was a brilliant guy. And he said the industry won't support 10 companies. He said it's got to consolidate down to five or six because the capital needs are so big. Well, let's be very clear. Those five or six or seven companies, are not, not one of them are going to be domiciled in, the, in Canada. They're going to go because they're of the scale. They attract the attention of the politicians. And they're so huge, uh, they're going to go to these very large economies, of which Germany, Japan, and the United States and China are the biggest. South Korea is in there because of first-mover advantage from many years ago. It remained to be seen how long that they can stay as one of the big five countries. But I think it probably could consolidate into four countries. But the idea that we are going to be a major player in the ecosystem of automotive manufacturing in the future is just, it's just hopes and dreams and aspirations that are not credible. We could spend ask you something on many else. other things in this country, many other things. I'm not saying don't do anything. I'm saying there's many other much more high-priority things that they could be spending it on that will help the economy grow. I, I just worry about, you know, down the road when we start looking at this from a realistic standpoint, and uh, because we're still in the hypothetical right now, this is great, here are the jobs, et cetera, but there's two things about this that I've learned from our conversations over the years, Ian. Uh, that, that they need in a, in a big way. First of all, a plant this size, which is the size of what, about six football fields, they say, you need hydro. And we have some of the highest hydro rates in North America right now. And uh, this government, the Ontario government, is not quite sure what they're going to do. Are they going back to nuclear? Are they going to do this? But a boom, yeah. they don't know. Secondly, they yeah. need raw materials. And, and one of the CEOs of one of the mining companies, up around the Ring of Fire, uh, that's owned that company and owned the mine the rights up there for some time, has said, we are nowhere near 
a deal to get that stuff out of the ground. It's years and years away. So are, 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 we, are we being pragmatic about this? This bill is, I think, probably, I gave other arguments, I think this is even um, a, a larger and more compelling argument. We have a history going back to the origins of being, um, and it's been pejoratively sneered at by many intellectuals uh, and liberal politicians, and I say the liberals because they have, this is identified with them, they've sneered at us being hewers of, of wood and drawers of water. In other words, natural resource. That's just the pejorative term, but it's natural resources, uh, extraction. And we have a competitive advantage. We have, a, to use the language of economics, we have a comparative advantage. We have enormous amounts of resources, highly educated workforce, very good universities that develop the technologies because natural resource extraction is very high-tech, contrary to those who claim falsely it's low-tech. It's very high-tech, very capital-intensive, and these critical minerals, even the government acknowledges, are absolutely essential for for electric cars. Well, if you don't have the critical minerals, the idea that the Chinese are going to hand them over to Canada to build batteries in southern Ontario is just absurd. Any, every country is scrambling to line up and control their own supply. We, if we wanted to spend money, if the government wants to, say, demonstrate a, you know, a commitment to the economy and, and building advantage, they should be spending money in the natural resource extraction area, not just LN, not just the critical minerals, LNG. The, the, uh, Asia wants LNG big time. Europe wants LNG big time. And we could be developing those critical minerals, and yet we're not. We passed the, the government passed legislation uh, just before the last election. That was the same time they passed the no pipeline bill. And it made it almost impossible to mine minerals in Canada because the, they created, they said, the most stringent mining standards in the world. So stringent that a lot of mining companies aren't, aren't proceeding to new mines because it doesn't make sense. It takes too long and costs too much money. So maybe I would rather they spend the money saying, you know, we're going to become a dominant producer in the world of critical minerals. That makes so I'm not I'm not just shooting at the government saying don't spend money. I'm saying, look, if you want to spend it, spend it strategically, spend it wisely, spend it where we have a competitive advantage, which is natural resource extraction, and then you can not corner the market, but you'll be a dominant player in the world in critical minerals. And we do have these critical minerals. Exactly. And the government is looking the other way and looking at the, at the other end of the, the value chain and saying, well, we'll build some batteries, some, uh, some electric batteries, but we don't even have the critical minerals to build them. This is why it's upside down and backward. Seems to be. Ian, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, timing being our enemy once again. Always great to have you on, though. Thanks so much for this today. My pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Ian Lee from uh, the Smart School of Business at Carleton University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Right now, I want to swing back to to the McDonald uh, issues, of course, about foreign interference. And, of course, uh, David Johnston's report that came out earlier this week. And and I know that it's been dissected upside down sideways many, many times. But there are a couple of issues here that that, uh, bother me simply because uh, of the way that, that Mr. Johnston and subsequently the prime minister uh, seem to just gloss over them and take these as as something that is just you know the way things are, and I, I'm not so sure that they are. Uh, the prime minister says that Canada must continue to strengthen its response to foreign election interference. Okay, that's check. We have, uh, we all agree to that, Mr. Prime Minister. Uh, he was responding to former Governor General David Johnson's initial report on the matter, which found serious issues on how intelligence from security agencies was communicated to the government. Here's what the prime minister said: Foreign interference is a constantly evolving 
increasingly sophisticated set of threats to Canadians, to our institutions, um, and to our democracy. And that's why we are constantly going to have to be iterating and improving in our response to foreign interference. All right. It seems to me that with the, the number of questions that were being asked, and I think many of them are legitimate questions, uh, and basically who knew what and when did they know it, et cetera, Mr. Johnson's initial report anyway uh, seems to steer totally away from that, about what happened uh, on Parliament Hill, what happened in the Prime Minister's office, who saw what, who read what, who decided uh, this was not noteworthy of bringing to the Prime Minister's attention. We, th he just kind of glossed over that and instead seemed to focus on the media, which is not unusual. It's always the media's fault when something goes wrong because we over-report, we blow things up, yada, yada, yada. Uh, but he also, went, I, I think, targeted uh, the, the security uh, industry in this country as well for you know the, the way they gathered information, the way they presented the information, uh, kind of throwing them under the bus, essentially. And, I, and of course, it's it's very difficult for agencies like that to respond because, I mean, they, they have to be very guarded in what they say because of what they know. So that's why I wanted to, to have this discussion with our next guest about this. He is Phil Gursky, who is the president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting. He's a distinguished fellow with the University of Ottawa's National Security Program, and he is a former CSIS analyst and always a welcome guest on this program. Phil, I'm glad you had some time to talk to us today. Thanks for being on the program. My pleasure, Bill. It's been a while. How are you, sir? It's been a long while, too far. I'm doing well, thank you very much. Did you get the same sense, Phil, that, that I did as I was listening to Mr. Johnson, that he was kind of throwing CSIS and others under the bus and saying, it's these guys don't have their act together? 1,000%, Bill. And as, a, as you mentioned, as a former analyst with CSIS, and I might add, a former analyst with CSC, Communication Security Establishment, which is our foreign intelligence signals organization, uh, I am very, very saddened that he would essentially say it's our fault. And I, and, and I can walk your listeners through how distribution works, Bill, if it's going to help them understand the process itself and show that, in fact, they have been doing their job. And if there's, if there's an issue with intelligence making it to the right people, it isn't with the intelligence services. It's with the people that receive the intelligence in the first place. Well, and, and Johnston, I'll paraphrase this. I don't want to read the, the whole thing there, but he, he seemed to indicate that, uh, that, that you know, there's a, a communication gap here between information that was gathered and, and once it was presented to the prime minister's office or the Privy Council, whomever it was. But as I understand it, and you and I have talked about this for many, many years now, uh, once CSIS or the other agency, once they gather information, once they, they put that information together, and once they put it in front of the, 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 the prime minister's staff, that's their job. They're not supposed to sit there and babysit them. And it, first of all, because they're not asked to. Nobody's asked them to stick around and explain. But that, once it's there and they close the door to that office, that's all on the PMO. It's not on the security agency anymore. Exactly. So let, let, let me walk you, you and your listeners through this, Please, Bill. there. Okay. Um, both CSIS and CSC have full-time liaison or customer relations officers. These are people who, in the case of CSIS, are probably intelligence officers. In the case of CSC, senior analysts. And their job is to take the intelligence that's produced and provide it uh, in you know, physical form to clients in a variety of offices, Global Affairs Canada, the RCMP, National Defense, the Privy Council Office, et cetera, et cetera. We don't sit on intelligence because it's fun or because you know I know something you don't know. And these people's jobs is simply to take the intelligence and make sure that our clients see it. Um, we have a variety of clients and some sometimes as, as you know, senior as ministers, I've certainly been in situations where I've had to brief ministers on terrorist threats to Canada. But you're absolutely right. If you give this to a senior Mandarin 
and you say, okay, we think the prime minister should, should see this. Uh, we can't force him to do so. This is our recommendation. We think it's important enough that the PM, you know, have a glance at this. If that official decides not to do that, that's completely out of CSIS and CSE's hands. That's their job to ensure that this very critical time-sensitive intelligence makes it to the people who need to see it. So for Mr. Johnson to say there's a problem with the distribution, there may be, but it's not at CSIS and CSE's end. It's at the end of the recipients of the intelligence in the first place. Well, and to that point, and this is a point that you've made, it was in your last book, I remember talking specifically about this particular incident, uh, when it comes to this information, uh, there's a protocol that's followed, and we all know, I think just by osmosis about, uh, you know, fact and fiction and things of this nature, but the, the inference from the Prime Minister and from Mr. Johnson was that the the specific details about some of the things that did got leaked to the media, for instance, uh, they said it was incomplete information, that, that, that they couldn't verify everything in it. So they simply said there's no sense in presenting it, uh, which, which I think is, is, is a, it's, there's a disconnect here. If they're waiting for proof positive and absolute proof and verification of that, uh, sometimes that's never there, isn't it? Isn't it your job as a CSIS analyst or whoever is presenting the information to say, here's what we know. Uh, we think this is worth you know, following up on, but you know, it's going to be, into, then it's a political decision, isn't it? Exactly. And I was, I was actually insulted, Bill, when I, you know, I, I read the report. I see, I think I saw the word rumor put in there or the rumor yeah. piecemeal. And, you know, speculation sorry, was another sir, one that came up a lot. We, you know, we as analysts, we, we take a look at all the information we have from multiple sources that's, that have been corroborated and we packaged up, we put a nice bow on it. And it's the best that we have. Does it answer all the questions? Absolutely not. Do we expect intelligence to be the only information that's used in decision making? Absolutely not. We expect it, or we would hope that it has some role to play, that some considerations given to it. But this notion that intelligence isn't the complete picture, uh, that's an inaccurate statement too, because nothing's a complete picture, Bill. You know that in the media, we all have a bit of this and a bit of that. Very rarely do we have the, the whole story. So I found that the report really dismissed not just the agencies themselves, but the nature of intelligence collection analysis in Canada. And if I were still working at CSIS, and of course I don't, I retired eight years ago, um, I would feel insulted by what this person said about my role in trying to keep Canada safe. I mean, if, if you're waiting, and that's the inference we got from the Prime Minister's office, that until there was absolute verification, you and I both know, and the world knows anyway, because of the investigation after that tragic day on 9-11, uh, that you know what that they were planning something and there was some some nefarious things going on, I, and those agencies first of all the FBI and the CIA weren't really talking to each other so they weren't sharing much, but there was right. not complete verification until the first plane went into the World Trade Center. I mean that's your verification. Hey, I guess they were right. Is that what these guys are waiting for, to to respond as opposed to pr to be proactive in this? I wish I knew, Bill. Um, in this case, well, you no, know, I'll give you an example, Phil, because it's one that you brought up in the book. Is the terror cell? It was it was training here in Ontario. What was that? About five, six, seven years ago, I guess now. Yeah, and, uh, and, oh, five, oh six, yeah. Yeah, and you guys reported on it, and thank God the law enforcement agencies acted on it before they they yeah. actually did what they wanted to do in situations like that. That's how the system is supposed to work, isn't it? Exactly, and with respect to you know, you know the PRC interference bill. CSIS has been worrying about this for 30 years. Now, I never worked China at CSIS. I have some very good friends who did. So, I, you know, I, I, I'm aware of things. And I know that we had our investigations. I know that we've been reporting to governments of both political stripes, by the way, not just the Liberals, but Conservatives sure. prior to that. Uh, and we've gotten a bit of a, mostly a shrug of the sh shoulders. And, you know, you referred to the leak earlier on. 
And, you know, I don't support the leak. I mean, I, I wouldn't leak information today. I didn't when I worked there. I understand the frustration. But, you know, this information has simply not been used. It hasn't been acted upon for, for more than 30 years now. And so for the government to say, well, you haven't given us a complete picture. Well, what else do they want? We've been giving them the message and very good, solid intelligence, which we've assessed to be accurate for the better part of the three decades. I mean, I mean, what more can a security service do for you? The initial reaction, and this is what has to frustrate you and your, your colleagues in, in, in intelligence business, uh, is that when something like this happens, and, and there were leaks, and, and I agree, that's still wrong, it's illegal. Uh, but if I'm Stephen Chase or Bob Fife from the Globe and Mail or, or Sam Cooper from Global News, I'm not going to throw that stuff in the blue box and say, oh, I can't touch this stuff. I mean, it's it, you follow up on this. And the immediate reaction from governments always, as you know, Phil, is, well, that's traitorous activity. You know, they, they're, they're un-Canadian. Uh, Daniel Ellsberg was, was considered to be a traitor by the Johnson administration yeah. until yeah. all of a sudden it was discovered because the papers were leaked. Hey, he's right. Uh, he was yeah. right all along. Uh, you know, you have to wait for, for that point, for that vindication. Well, the other thing that, that really I think um, I found un unacceptable, Bill, was that Mr. Johnson actually said that the person who leaked it, and we don't know who that person is. Uh, there's allegations it's a person with CSIS. As I pointed out, we don't know that. I mean, it was a CSIS report. It could have been a customer that leaked it. It could have been whatever. But Mr. Johnson suggested the person acted out of malice. And, and my, my retort is, how does he know what the motivation was for this person? Again, it was wrong to do so, but clearly this person felt that a very serious threat to our democracy, to our system of governance in Canada, was being perpetrated by the People's Republic of China and has been for decades, and the government doesn't seem to care about it. This is what likely, and I'm, I'm, I'm you know, making an assumption here, but I don't know either what the motivation was, but I'm assuming that this person was just so fed up with seeing nothing done, they said, I'm going to try this and see what happens. And of course, it did get a reaction. We've had, you know, the, the Johnson report, we've had the Prime Minister promise to do more about this. But for, for Johnson to say that the person is somehow evil for what he did, I'm sorry, that, that's an insult to for, for something he simply can't know the motivation of the person. And again, as you as you suggested, Bill, it, it, it kind of adds on to this message that this isn't important. It's not it's not definitive. Nothing to see here, folks, move along. And this is just the, the way this government seems to ignore most threats to national security that, that have been presented over the past couple of years. Well, let me give you an, a real example in real time here, okay? It was was it was Monday that Mr. Johnson issued this report and said, yes, we know there's interference from the Chinese Communist Party, but it's not as bad as the or as, as dangerous as the media is, is portraying it. Okay, that, that was, I'm paraphrasing, but that was the essence of his message. Yesterday afternoon, uh, I look across on our news services here, and here's a story that the Five Eyes, including all of our Five Eye partners, have issued an official warning to the United States and their allies about a serious cyber attack that's targeting uh, industries and, and infrastructure in those countries. And that's from the Chinese Communist Party. Now, they, they went public with this. They didn't just say, hey, guys, nudge, judge, wink, wink. Uh, I want to talk to you on a secure line. They, they said, this is so dangerous which totally, I think, negates what Mr. Johnson said three days before that. This is a serious yeah. threat, and it does need to be taken seriously. Well, and the other thing I'd point out, Bill, is how does Mr. Johnson know what the effect of the election was? Does he know how, how people voted and why? Now, you know, it may turn out that, in fact, the, the results would have been the same in the absence of Chinese interference, but we can't know that 100% because we don't know who was affected. We don't know how many Canadians were threatened with harm to their families back home. 
if they voted didn't vote a certain way. We don't know what people you know elect to do when they when they put their recs in that ballot box and when you when you go vote every four years. So for for the government to say categorically that interference, they acknowledge it, it 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 existed as you said, but for them to say categorically it had no effect. My question is how how do you, how do you know that? Do do you know why Canadians voted? Do you know for whom they voted? If you do, then our ballot system's not very good because it's supposed to be secret. It's supposed to be confidential. So again, this is just one more sign that the government seems to have ticked this box. You know, we've done our due diligence. We had Mr. Johnson do his report. His recommendation is no public inquiry, which by the way, I'm I'm 50-50 on. Public inquiries are like a national passion with us, Bill. We have like three a week in this country. I'm not sure how good they are in some cases. But the government can now say, yep, you know what, we've uh, we've done what you asked us to do, now we'll move on. And how about them Blue Jays, by the way? You know, it's just like nothing to see here, folks. Let's move on. But the problem is, is, is while we're moving on, so is the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, and, 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 and I'm frustrated by the fact that, again, in this report from Mr. Johnson and the comments that Mr. Trudeau made uh, a couple of weeks even before the report was released, were that, yeah, it's there, but, you know, it's not a big deal. Uh, it had no impact on the outcome of the election, according to their own investigations. Do we wait until it does have an impact on the election? Do we wait until we find out, oh, my God, look what they've done here? Uh, or uh, which is one of the reasons and one of the motivations for the uh, the, the security uh, investigation, of course, into the Russian in, uh, in, uh, influence in the Trump election, uh, yeah. which took three years to conclude, by the way. This took about three months or three weeks, I guess, even. And they seem to come up with some conclusions on this. Uh, do you wait for it to become a crisis and, and, and then react to it or do you nip it in the bud? And apparently they want they want to wait until it becomes a crisis and then they respond to it. But that might be too late. Well, I'm confident that my former colleagues at CSIS are still on the job, that they're still doing their investigations, they're recruiting their sources, they're getting federal court warrants where where we're mandated to find out exactly what's happening, who's doing what to whom, where it's happening, what's the extent of it. So CSIS is going to do its legislative mandate, that is to report on, on threats to security of Canada as defined by the CSIS Act. And, and more specifically, in this case, it's Section 2B of the Act, which is foreign interference. They're going to keep producing intelligence. They're going to give it to their customer relations officers to give to senior officials. That's, as we said at the outset, Bill, that's what they do. That's that's what intelligence services do. If governments choose to ignore it, you know, use it for the line of birdcage, that, that's their prerogative. But so I'm confident that CSIS is doing its job. I have no confidence that governments, as you mentioned, are taking this thing seriously enough. And it may take something really egregious to happen. But isn't that kind of human nature in a way, Bill? We wait until the worst thing happens before we act, as opposed to taking smaller acts leading up to to prevent it. You mentioned the Toronto 18, a great example. Nothing happened because we were on the Toronto 18 from day one. Had we waited until something more definitive was there, people would have been killed. Thank God they weren't. Now, we're not talking about people being killed here in terms of Chinese interference. But, yeah, I think you're right. The government seems to want to, uh, you know, just move on down the pathway. And when it gets bad enough, then maybe we'll do something about it. Then again, maybe we won't. Uh, and by the way, if you want to make this a partisan issue, not you, but I'm talking about the the, the, the general. Uh, as CSIS officials have told us, uh, the, the former directors, et cetera, this goes back a long, long way to conservative and liberal governments. So a pox on both their houses in situations like this. Uh, Phil, we've got to leave it there for now. Uh, thanks so much for spending some time with us. I wanted to get your perspective on this and, 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 and give that side of the story. And I, I'm glad you were able to do that this morning. Thanks very much, Phil. Have a nice day. You too. Phil Gursky, a former uh, CSIS analyst and, of course, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.
The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.